What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 105, The Sun King, aka Louis XIV, You Ain't Got Nothing On Me. In this episode, we dive into a curious aspect of Amunhotep III, King of Egypt. You see, this ruler went beyond any other before him in claiming a sort of divinity on earth. Today, I want to look at how this pharaoh claimed to be a living god. This episode is brought to you by Skip Howard in gratitude for his generous support. Skip, thank you kindly. May Amunhotep, the son of Hapu, master of builders and wise man of the ages, guide you to knowledge and achievements. Also thanks to Stephen and Rusty for becoming patrons of the podcast. Surely, Amunhotep Hapu will reward your investment and raise your monuments high. The year was now 1366 BCE, approximately. It was regnal year 34 under the majesty of Neb Ma'at Re Amunhotep III, king of Upper and Lower Egypt. The son of Re, Amunhotep, was now 46 years old, approximately. He was past his prime. Increasingly overweight, with dental problems creeping up on him, Amunhotep was entering the latter days of his prosperous and long reign. Little did he know, he had just five years left to live. The king was residing at Thebes in the palace called Neb Ma'at Re Aten Chehen, aka Neb Ma'at Re is the dazzling sun disc. We know this palace as Malkata. It was a splendid place, richly decorated, comfortable and wealthy. A good place to live for a ruler who was increasingly emphasizing his own magnificence. Even far away from Thebes, Amunhotep's power remained strong, and in some places, wonderfully ostentatious. Imagine yourself riding an Egyptian ship sailing up the River Nile, heading south. Behind you, the city of Thebes recedes into the distance. Ahead, foreign lands await. Sailing upriver, you would pass different markers of Egyptian power. First, the border town of Abu, aka Elephantine, perched atop an island in the Nile. On this island, a small town and fortress marked the border between the two lands and the region that we call Nubia. Abu, Elephantine, was an important place, and even though it was small, the pharaoh included it in his monumental building projects. Once upon a time, a small shrine stood on the island of Elephantine. This was built by Amunhotep's servants, and it was still standing in the early 1800s, when the French expedition under Napoleon Bonaparte documented the site. Sadly, this shrine is gone today. The stones were carted off by locals long ago. 
But Napoleon's scientists made a thorough record of the temple, and the images they made provide a general sense of its appearance. They recorded the hieroglyphs and scenes, giving us a look at a now-vanished structure. You can see this shrine on the podcast website, and I recommend taking a look, because the French artists had an interesting way of capturing Egyptian style. Passing Abu Elephantine, you enter Ta-Nehesiu, the land of the bowmen, which we call Nubia or Sudan. It's been a while since Nubia appeared in our story, a few decades since Amunhotep III led a military campaign in the region. Well, in the second half of his reign, the king paid a bit more attention to this area, and his officials did some great work on his behalf. You continue sailing up the Nile, going past iconic locations. The fortresses of Buhen, Semna, Uronati, and Sai Island pass by. At every stop, your ship would have encountered Egyptian soldiers and administrators. Perhaps they clustered around your boat, waiting for mail packets, or perhaps they sought trade goods brought from home. Out here in the colonial empire, Egyptians were acutely aware of their distance from the two lands. As you passed Sai Island, you might prepare yourself for some wilderness. This was the theoretical limit of Egyptian military control. But instead, you would find something beautiful. Just a few miles upriver, a temple, bright and shiny, suddenly rose from the floodplain on your left. On the east bank, Iabet, a mud brick wall rose high, but not quite high enough to hide the columns, architraves, and pylons of a grand pharaonic temple. This is the site that we call Soleb. Soleb is a temple constructed in the second half of Amunhotep III's reign. It is devoted to several gods, all connected with each other and with Nubia as a region. The temple was huge, about 300 meters long, and surprisingly, it was the same length and design as the Temple of Luxor at Thebes. For some reason, Amunhotep's architects copied the other temple, using its design to inspire their Nubian monument. This might have something to do with the temple's function. Soleb Temple is full of divine images. Different deities like Amun the Hidden One and Khonsu the Moon appear on the walls. We see the pharaoh making offerings to them, and we also see the gods embracing Amunhotep and welcoming him as one of their own. Deities like Amun, Khonsu, and Ra extend their hands to the king, offering life, Ankh, and clasping his hand affectionately. To all intents and purposes, it looks like he is part of the family. This is kind of the point. Soleb is mostly destroyed today, except for a few surviving pieces, but archaeologists have been able to reconstruct a lot of the decoration, and what is there suggests that Soleb was one of the main places for worshipping Amunhotep III as a god. It was here, in Nubia, that the pharaoh initiated a very confronting practice of treating himself like one of the great beings, a member of the divine pantheon. Back in Thebes, the Temple of Luxor was dedicated primarily to the cult of the king. Decorated with images of his birth, and containing statues which showed him in a divine status, Luxor Temple invigorated the king's spirit, or Ka, and helped renew his energy to govern the land. Down at Soleb, 
a nearly identical temple took the idea one step further and began to represent the king specifically as a god. Why he did this and how is the subject I want to explore. Around year 30, when the first said festival occurred, Amunhotep III started to represent himself in new ways. We've seen a couple of these crop up before. In episode 103, we saw how the royal palace was called Neb Ma'atre Aten Chehen, or Neb Ma'atre is the Dazzling Aten. In episode 100b, we saw how the pharaoh symbolically married his own daughter, mimicking the relationship between the sun god Ra and his daughter Hathor. In episode 96, we saw how the king turned his mortuary temple into the largest sanctuary in the country. We saw how he filled that mortuary temple with a host of divine statues, a congregation of gods all come to see him. It seems that Amunhotep had pretensions to godhood. Now most people know that the pharaohs were generally considered divine, Horus on earth and all of that. So what's different about Amunhotep? Well, it's complicated, but the short answer goes like this. Unlike previous kings who inherited their religious traditions and just went along, Amunhotep III began to add to older conventions. Instead of saying, I am Horus, son of Ray, he started to say, I am Horus, and I am also Ray. In other words, he stopped being a son of God, and started to become God himself. In order to represent this, Amunhotep began to change his public image as well. And this is one of the clearest cases where we see the pharaoh attaining a new status. Around the time of the first said festival, when Soleb Temple was still under construction, the king began to alter his appearance in art. New statues started to show a different angle of the pharaoh, one that was less about earthly power and more about eternal youth. If you look at the statues commissioned around this time, you will see a noticeable change in how Amunhotep appears. The king's public image now shifted from a mature ruler, human and mortal, to something more eternal. His face became youthful, as if he was de-aging before our eyes. His cheeks became chubbier like a child, his eyes and lips larger like a baby's. The change is so profound that Egyptologists can figure out when a statue was carved just because of its face. If Amunhotep appears mature and grown, it was probably made before year 30. After that, well, it's chubby cheek central. Different statues of Amunhotep also show him with some of the physical characteristics of particular gods. On one statue, the king appears as Hapi, Lord of the Nile. He has the fat belly and flabby chest and papyrus headdress of the god. What's more, he clutches his belly as if he were pregnant, mimicking Hapi who created fertility for agriculture. Even the physical features of this statue capture that idea. It is made in black stone, like the fertile soil which Hapi left behind after the flood. And on the back, it has a representation of the Jed Pillar, the strange column which was a symbol of Osiris. Osiris, lord of agriculture, was the other fertility god of the day, and the connection between the symbolism would have been pretty apparent to anyone looking at this statue. 
This tiny image suggests that Amunhotep maybe wanted to be Harpy, Lord of the Nile, and Osiris, Lord of Agriculture. Basically, the king was representing himself as the living source of fertility and growth. The fat features emphasize fecundity, while the references to the gods emphasize divinity. The statue has no head, but once upon a time it would have showed the king in chubby youthful form, perhaps wearing the blue crown, a sort of helmet with ribbons on the back. The king appears formal and stiff. On the back of it, hieroglyphs reveal a very important idea. Quote, the good god, the image of Amun-Ra, whom the god loved more than any king, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt and lord of the two lands, Neb Ma'at Re, is given life forever. End quote. There was an important word in there. Did you catch it? Amun-Hotep described himself as the image of Amun. Image, or tut, was usually a reference to divine statues, like gods or funerary images. In this context, it seems as though Amunhotep was saying that his statue, and by extension his body, were images of the body of Amun. In other words, Amunhotep was slowly making himself into an image of the great gods. We're not entirely sure why Amunhotep III specifically went along with this idea. Other kings beforehand had played with divine attributes. Hatshepsut, most famously, presented herself as the daughter of Amun, who impregnated her mother and created her physically. But Amunhotep III takes many of these older ideas and dials them up to 11. It's not entirely clear why. Was he particularly arrogant, or was his realm so prosperous that he genuinely believed he was creating fertility and wealth for the land? These are the questions that we may never be able to answer, because they rely on a degree of psychology for a person who is now dead. Looking back with hindsight, it seems like Amunhotep was tapping into a sort of religious trend of the time, a move towards greater celebrations of the gods on earth, and an emphasis on their physical appearance in the world. This is a big topic though, and I'm going to cover it in a future episode when we get to the reign of Amunhotep's son. Long story short, Amunhotep III was clearly a grandiose man with some very inflated ideas of his own importance. But they might not necessarily be ideas that he came up with. It's possible he was simply following a trend moving in the wider society. So Amunhotep III started to represent himself as something like a living god, an image of the heavenly beings on earth. He did this more than any other king before him, taking ideas that had been toyed with and really emphasizing them in some grandiose ways. Some pharaohs were deified after their death. Amunhotep may have done it in his own lifetime. From regnal year 30 onwards, the year of the first said festival, Amunhotep III began to say that he, the pharaoh, was an image of Amun, an image of Ra, an image of Aten itself. In this respect, he began to refer to himself as, quote, the image of Ra before the two lands, and the image of Amun-Re, whom the god loved more than any other. And of course, he called himself the Dazzling Aten, the solar disk who illuminates all lands. So Amun-Hotep was making himself a god. Through all of this, you may be wondering, 
If the pharaoh was a god, did that affect his wife as well? What was the deal with Queen T around this time? Well, just down the road, or up the river actually, there is another temple in Nubia, a temple dedicated to Queen T. South of Soleb, the temple of Sedanga is almost totally destroyed, but once upon a time it was a magnificent sanctuary for the worship of Queen T. She appeared at the temple in the guise of Hathor, the mother goddess and daughter of Ra. Today, the only surviving architecture of this temple is a tall column topped with a head of Hathor. It seems that the temple was focused on this goddess and her earthly representative, T. Hathor was the daughter of Ra, sun god supreme. She was often referred to as the Eye of Ray, and in mythology, she could be a bloodthirsty harbinger of chaos and ruin. Of course, Hathor was really a sweetheart. She just needed the proper offerings, namely beer. So, at Sedanga Temple, Queen T was worshipped as the great but fearsome goddess, to whom all should pay homage and give generously. This temple was probably quite rich. Unfortunately, Sedanga Temple is even more ruined than Soleb. It was built in sandstone from the local quarries, which just happens to be a rather low-quality strain. So time and wind have done their damage, plus generations of locals have carted blocks away for use in their own lives. Today, a small hill of rubble and tumbled-down blocks survives, plus that one Hathor column standing tall. From the peak of that column, Hathor continues to watch over Nubia, her peaceful smile a mask for the ferocity beneath. Like Amunhotep, Queen T began to take on more divine attributes as the years went by. This wasn't as extreme as the Amunhotep ones, after all, Egypt was still a patriarchal society. But she does appear in some images with the characteristics of different fertility goddesses. Queen T appears as Moot, and the vulture goddess Nekbet, who might also be Moot. On one particularly lovely statue, which you can see on the website, T appears clad in a dress that is designed to mimic vultures' wings. The wings wrap around her hips and cross figures directly over her pubic region. T herself in this image is certifiably thick, a voluptuous figure with eternally youthful features. For all intents and purposes, the queen appears as a fertility deity, primed and ready to produce children. The association between T, the mother goddesses, and the wider fertility of the land is pretty easy to unpack, and I wonder if this was a particular idea of the royal couple. As their earthly power matured, and they physically aged, Perhaps they sought to counteract the ravages of time by fronting as an eternally fertile couple. It is possible that T and Amunhotep were representing themselves together as the preeminent deities of birth and rebirth. This is something we will see done quite explicitly with their successors, King Akhenaten and his wife Nefertiti. So Amunhotep III ascended to a supreme godhood. Queen T did the same, although perhaps in a slightly different way. By regnal year 34, the couple were at the peak of their power and the height of their splendour. Where could they go from here? The next step was to continue the practices they had learned in the first of the royal said festivals. In regnal year 34, 
Amunhotep repeated his jubilee and celebrated a second Hebsed. We will explore this after the break. We now come to the main event of 1366 BCE. In Regnal year 34, the second said festival of Amunhotep III occurred. The king would have three in total, and they all took place near Malkata Palace. Each one is attested in some way, often in the paintings from tombs recorded by officials who were proud to witness them. At least, that's the case for Sedfest 1 and Sedfest 3. Curiously, the second said festival is barely known at all. We have abundant imagery for the first and third said festivals, but the second is invisible in the artistic record. We're not sure why. It's possible that the second one was a failure in some respect. Perhaps Amunhotep did not complete the physical trials. Or perhaps the first and third were so incredibly lavish that the second one paled in comparison. It's hard to say especially when you're arguing from an absence of evidence rather than anything concrete. But a few traces do survive and hint at the general idea of the second said festival. The second said fest occurred at Malkata Palace. Officially, it was described as the Wichem Heb Sed, repeating of the said festival. Chronologically, this second festival took place four years after the first, around 1366 BCE. Now this is slightly unusual. Conventionally, we expect the kings to do their first said fest in year 30, and then every three years after that. The truth is though, that rule is far looser than you would expect. There are maybe two kings who definitively followed that pattern. The rest of the time, We kind of just assume they fit that schedule. And you do know what they say about assumptions. The second said fest included a grand display of Pharaoh's wealth. Apart from the normal rituals, there were offerings, a feast, and a celebration of the king's power. This material part of the festival is the best recorded part, thanks to the discovery of jar labels at Malkata Palace. Egyptian vessels, jugs, amphorae, etc., were often tagged with labels on which hieroglyphs marked the goods in question, the origin point, and the date. From Malkata, more than 400 jar labels mark the goods and offerings of the second said festival, and which people were responsible for the deliveries. Looking at these jar labels, we can see that a huge quantity of food and drink arrived at Malkata for the celebrations in year 34. There were deliveries of meat, beer, animal fat, honey, and wine. All the ingredients you would expect for a feast and for ritual offerings to the gods. Honey in particular was a great luxury, which the gods loved and which Egyptians had been cultivating for more than a thousand years. I'll do an episode on beekeeping one day. It's pretty cool. The jar labels from Malkata mostly record meat. More than 80% of the surviving pieces mention beef in one form or another. 
Some of these labels single out a particular type of beef called meshwesh bull. Meshwesh means Libyan, so these might be bulls taken from raids or grown in the Western Delta by people of Libyan descent. Again, I'll do an episode on cattle ranching one day. Suffice to say, it's an old but fascinating industry. Anyway, the jar labels are the only substantial records for this particular said fest. We don't know which rituals exactly occurred in this year. Were they a repeat of the first said festival, or did the rites and practices change on each occasion? That one is a mystery for now, but what we do know is the specific location where the event took place. The Malkata jar labels don't come from the palace itself, but from a structure just to the north. About 400 metres north of the main palace, or 1300 feet, the second said festival was held at a new temple commissioned for the purpose. This temple was dedicated to Amun, Lord of Thebes, but it has a very strange design and configuration. Rather than mimicking Karnak or Luxor, or even the mortuary temple nearby, this Malkata temple seems more like an old kingdom sanctuary than a new kingdom shrine. Looking at the temple of Malkata, an Egyptologist named Ekaterini Koltsida, based in Athens, has studied this temple intensively, and noted how the architectural layout actually abandons the conventions of 18th dynasty monuments. Instead of long processional routes with pylons, colonnades, courtyards, and shrines, the building is laid out more like an old kingdom pyramid temple. Now the specifics of the architecture are pretty academic, but it seems as though Amunhotep's architects designed this temple as a copy of old kingdom sanctuaries. In other words, Amunhotep III repeated his tradition of reviving old ideas for his said fests. Back in year 30, Pharaoh's agents had visited Old Kingdom monuments, like the Pyramid of Sneferu at Meidum, in order to uncover texts related to the said festivals. Now, in year 34, Pharaoh's builders did the same thing with the temple. They copied older forms, using architecture to revive the distant past. It's sort of the next step in an increasingly nostalgic view of Egyptian royalty. The old ways were best, copy the old ways, and use their ideas to enhance the modern world. So, at the western edge of Thebes, Amunhotep III found a way to bring his country's own antiquity back to life. It's a curious decision, but an important one. The last decade of Amunhotep III is full of references to the Old Kingdom and its ideas. The said festivals revived ancient traditions, the Malkata temple copied ancient forms. By the time it was done, Amunhotep's second said fest had crystallized certain philosophies in how royalty, specifically his royalty, was being presented to the world. It seems that the great pharaoh was now treating himself like the culmination of everything that had gone before. Amunhotep III was the pinnacle of ancient Egyptian kingship. As regnal year 34 ended, the pharaoh Amunhotep III had claimed a unique position in his society and its history. More than any king beforehand, Amunhotep claimed divinity on earth and used his monuments to place himself among the pantheon of gods. 
If you could visit his temples in Nubia, his mortuary temple at Thebes, the palace of Malkata, and the inner sanctuaries of Luxor Temple, if you could see the said festivals planned and enacted, if you could hear the proclamations of his heralds, you would get an overwhelming sense that this was a king who ruled all he surveyed. Every king was Horus, lord of the two lands, but Neb Ma'at Re, Amunhotep, was ruler of all. From horizon to horizon, Amunhotep III claimed governance over everything that the sun touched. He was, in effect, the living incarnation of the sun god. Amunhotep III went beyond any of his predecessors in claiming a sort of supreme divinity. He was no longer just Amunhotep, he was Neb Ma'at Re Aten Chehen, Neb Ma'at Re the Dazzling Sun Disk. He was not just a king of kings, he was a, quote, Ra of kings, a sun god prevailing over all monarchs. He was the good god, the creator, the beautiful of manifestations. In a strange way, Amunhotep III was Amun-Ra himself. On the next episode of the History of Egypt podcast, we enter the last phase of Amunhotep's reign. The king has reached his apex, now he enjoys his final years in splendour and comfort. Mostly, this involves a flurry of monument building, but it also involves some fascinating diplomacy with foreign powers. In episode 106, we begin the end of Amunhotep's reign. We look at his last monuments, the death of some notable servants, and how he received a sort of ancient male order bride. That's episode 106, releasing soon. Thank you.